Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Everyone, welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, editorial director, here with Mara Levinsky, senior editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, we just saw an explosive week of episodes on Days of Our Lives, which should hopefully tie viewers over for the next two weeks when the show will not air due to coverage of the Summer Olympics. I mean, we saw Nicole get busted by Sammy, then Nicole turn around and bust Sammy, <laughs> then steal Ciara from her wedding to Theo, and it was just a lot. Now, it would be a lot for one week on any show, but the perfect way to keep viewers wanting more. It's going to be a very long two weeks before we see how everything plays out, and I cannot wait. It was such a great, like, not even cliffhanger, but like an onslaught of cliffhangers. That is how you do it, you know? Uh, So as hard as the next two weeks are potentially going to be for Days fans, one long wait will be over this coming week for GH fans when Liz and Finn confess to Jason and Anna, respectively, about what really went down with Peter on the roof, on the staircase, and in the freezer. (laughs) So I talked with both Steve Burton, who plays Jason, and Finola Hughes, who plays Anna, and they both mentioned that their character's first instinct is to try to do damage control and make sure that Liz and Finn are protected. Now, whether they will be successful remains to be seen, but this much is clear. Once Jason and Anna are in the know, the story is definitely going to take some big turns. Uh, Also, for the new issue, I got to speak with Nicholas Chavez, the new Spencer. I absolutely loved getting to know him a bit. He is so charming and had a lot of insight into what uh, makes Spencer tick. Yeah, I think it's already fun to see him on camera mixing it in with the other teens. Uh, You know, count me in. Um, But there is so much GH material to unpack in this issue for sure. Uh, Now, we recently did a poll online asking fans to vote on the most iconic soap characters of all time. So it was actually hard to narrow down a list. Um, I know you and I had discussed putting Daisy Stefano on, for example, but then we thought he would be a slam dunk for the best villains of all time list. And of course, the first comment I saw on the response to the poll was, where's Stefano? So Uh sorry to all the Stefano fans. We're Stefano fans too. Please know he was definitely on our list, but we had to really cut it down. So the top vote getters, not surprisingly, were Daisy's Marlena and All My Children's Erica. They both tied for the number one spot. GH's Luke and Laura made the cut as well. And to me, anyone who has ever heard of a soap opera knows those two. Yeah, it's definitely not a definitive list. Like, there's no way it could be with where we had to cap it, which I think was at 13. 
Um, and I, I kind of feel similarly uh, to Stefano and how he would likely be the most iconic villain, uh, that Marlena would probably top a pole of the most iconic heroines, and Erica would probably top a pole of the most iconic fixins or bad girls. Uh, I think there are like iconic archetypes of so many different types in daytime. But to me, to be iconic, you have to have at least a few decades of service under your belt, probably multiple marriages. You probably have to have spawned legacy characters. You know, in general, you have to be that kind of high impact character who is next to uh, impossible to imagine how the course of a show would have unfolded without. But it was very, very interesting to see how readers voted. And it was definitely a fun feature for us to put together. And I have to say, I do think that Marlena and Erica are very deserving winners. And they do, to me, represent different ends of the female character spectrum, if you will, which makes a lot of sense to me, given that this genre has always celebrated strong female characters. I could not agree more. And speaking of strong female characters, our guest today is definitely one of them. It's Jack A. Harry, who made her day's debut earlier this year as Paulina Price. Now, as a big fan of Another World, I will always have a special place in my heart for her because she played Lily Mason in the 80s and brings back so many good memories of that time in Bay City. She worked with Felicia, Cass, Carter, Thomasina. I mean, I could go on. I just adored those years, and I was so excited to hear she was coming to Salem. You know, I missed her on Another World. I didn't start watching that show until 1989. But Jack Hay was such a major star in my eyes even then. You know, I was a complete devotee of 227, her iconic 1980 sitcom. And I just thought she was so beautiful and so dynamic. And guess what? I still do. <laughs> uh, she has had just such a signature charisma to her throughout her career, I think. And I think we knew just based on the casting alone that Daisy's Paulina was not going to be a shrinking violet. It's really just been a joy to have her back in the daytime fold as a viewer. And I've told this story on the podcast before, but I interviewed her once for a catching up piece. And I told her that all of my friends were so jealous that I was getting to talk to her. And she said, rub it in, baby. So I'm taking that advice and I will be rubbing today's podcast in as many faces as possible. <laughs> well, let's give us both the opportunity to do that and get her on the line. Hi, Jack Hay. Hi. How What's you doing? Happening? I'm cool. I'm cool. You know, that's spelled K-E-W-L. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could not be more thrilled to be talking to you today. We have been actually talking about having you on the podcast since the day you started. So this is huge for us. So let's start. You were born in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, but moved up to Harlem, New York when you were nine. So what right. was Harlem like at that time? And was it a culture shock for you? It was worse than that. I came up, and let me first say, I came from Winston via South Carolina. My mother, she couldn't, like a lot of those families that were migrating to the North for better, you know, circumstances and better economic opportunities. She couldn't find a babysitter and nobody she trusted. So she left me down there with her Aunt Gurley. That was her name, Aunt Gurley, G-I-R-L-Y. So I stayed with her on a chicken farm. Just so you know, I collected eggs every day from underneath the house from a chicken coop. <laughs> and I used to hang tobacco. And I didn't wear any shoes. Then I got to Harlem. Okay, I just want to put that in there because when I got to New York, I had an accent like that. My sister's name was Brenda. Bur hey, Tony, how y'all doing? What was that? <laughs> they, they beat it up, that accent. They said, you can't talk like that up here. Uh-uh, you can't beat the up. They'll beat you up. And then he was right. They beat that accent and that country out of me. And I was, I used to cry and cry. I didn't fit in. So when I got to Harlem, I was, I'm from Harlem, but I'm not of it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it was more than a culture shock. I was a lonely little kid, even though I had brothers and sisters, you know, I didn't know what 
the heck was going on, but I was really miles ahead at that point. Well, you went to a high school for the performing arts, the one that, in fact, fame was, was set in. So clearly there was some interest in performing that you were already on the road to discovering. Uh, but how, how did you get into performing? Oh, no, I went to the High School of Music and Art. That's okay. different from, like, yeah, you, you, know, you know, it was a war between us. You know, we thought we were better than that, and we still do. <laughs> M&A, they called it. <laughs> but um, it's now downtown at, uh, near Juilliard. But when I went, it was up on Convent Avenue, 135th Street, you know, which was up a great hill. That was a whole nother story. But when um, I got there, I had come from um, junior high school, an all-girls junior high school. And I did plays in junior high. I did The King and I. So I was doing plays. I did Oklahoma first. I wanted the lead part. They wouldn't give it to me because I was a junior. You know, you can only get the lead if you were a senior. But I, I knew I should have got that part then. I was so mad. I wanted to be curly. <laughs> they were like, you know, in Oklahoma, but they were like, no, you're good, but you know, you gotta let the senior class. And the girl stank. She stank. Anyway, I got the king and I, and I was brilliant. Wait, and I'm saying this because my sister reminded me the other day. She said, when I saw you on stage during the king and I, she said, I know she's gonna be a star. Nobody told me anything to, to assure me that that's what I was going to be. You know, an artist, a performer, an actor. I didn't have anybody saying, this is what you're gonna be. I had people leading me there. You know, so you can get led without even knowing you're, you know, because I had a best friend. Her name was Novella. She played Anna uh, in The King, you know, Anna in The King. She was Anna. And we were best buds. We were tight. So, and I was the king and I, you know, I was king. I was Yul Brenner. I did everything he did. So I got a standing ovation. But when we got accepted to the High School of Music and Art, she got accepted. Uh, another girl, only about three of us got accepted. Three, four. And everybody was celebrating them getting in, uh, Novella, Lynn Pinnell. I, you know, I remember everybody. So it's three women that got accepted. So I was going home and I was a little dejected, but I said, oh, well, I'll just go someplace else, you know, another school. And the teacher said, she said, how come you're not celebrating? I said, for what? She said, you're going uh, too. I said, where? She said, the High School of Music and Art. I said, but nobody told me. You know what she said? She said, well, we always knew you would. So my life is like that now. Probably for you girls too and young women. People expect it and they... They don't want to tell you because they already have figured it out, that you figured it out. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know. When she told me that, my world opened up, but I had no idea. So I didn't know I wanted to be a performer until I was 16. Okay. And don't ask. Oh, I was in school and um, I just started getting jobs. You know, mm -hmm. started getting acting jobs. Mm -hmm. Job after job after job after job. Who knew? But I still want to be a teacher. So I kept right. doing it. Yeah. Well, to that end, in college, you majored in education, and then you did teach high school history for a few years in Brooklyn. So were, so you were pursuing acting at the same time, or was it on the back burner? I did everything. In those days, we hustled. You know, I had a job um, provided for by the government. You know, they had various youth programs then. Um, you know, um, LBJ was my favorite president because, not because of the man, but the policies. You know, he instituted the, um, he passed the Civil Rights Law and the Voting Rights Act. And he got them passed in Congress and the, you know, the Senate and the House. So uh, all this money came flowing in and I was part of that. I got everything, you know, so I got acting lessons and I was, you know, studying history and I was, uh, had a job and I got paid every other week. I got paid $48.59. Boy, when I got that check, let me tell you, I was like, um, oh, I was so happy. It sounds like nothing. But when you earn your own money, it makes you feel independent. And I was taking acting lessons after school for five straight years. So I hustled. I Sometimes I do the soap in the morning, which is another thing, another world. 
Then I'd go and do my movie, which was Moscow and the Hudson. And then at night, I'd do another play. Can you believe it? I no. thought nothing of it. But, the, you know, that's the way, and that's the way I am now. I'll, I love um, acting. I just love it. But I like teaching as well. So, you know, there's two sides. So I still love it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's get into this professional acting career of yours. Um, so you made your Broadway debut in 1978 in a Broadway musical, which was written by William F. Brown, who was coming off of this, like, hugely successful show, The Wiz, which you were also involved with. Yes, I understand it. Um, But sadly, this show was like not a commercial success and it closed after one night. In one night. Well, what was that like? Were you devastated? Were you all right with it? I can't even imagine. Oh, I thought it was a flop too. Oh, no. (laughs) When you're in a flop, you know it. Don't let anybody tell you different. When you think you're in a hit, if something turns out to be a hit and you don't know it, good, but that's not true. (laughs) Everybody knows when they're in a bomb. Oh, (laughs) it stank. But... It was my first professional job in terms of joining uh, Actors' Equity, you know, the union for actors in New York and um, Los Angeles. And um, so I was proud of that accomplishment. You know, it got me, it, it got me status. It got me street cred. <laughs> but, you know, it just got me, you know, I was validated. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that, that made it. But I was with some very distinguished people in that play. You know, uh, Loretta Devine, who we're still great friends. George Faison was the one. He, he taught me dancing. He's like my mentor. He uh, choreographed the Wiz, so he got us that job, and everybody, Gower Champion, he came and took in the take, took over the directing. You know, so you meet, you, you know, you meet a lot of people, and people came to see that, and I got great reviews. <laughs> Who there knew? You go. That's right. I got another job because another director saw me, a casting director saw me in the play and said, "Oh, hire her." You know, so it went. You know, the next job gets the next job. I always say say that. Yeah, so I tried to do my best, but it was a pop. It was a bomb. But I got a show called Yubi the next day. I'm talking about the very next day. That's amazing. Um, now, in 1982, you appeared in the world premiere of the Negro Ensemble Company's Colored People Time with another rising star who would become a big name in the daytime world, Debbie Morgan. So what do you remember about working with Debbie? We're still great friends. She taught me so much, and she still does. But the biggest lesson I don't think she knows is that she taught me is when you audition and you leave, leave it in the room. If you get it or not, she said, don't take it home with you and go, oh, did I get it or did I do what? Just, and it took me years to learn what she meant, but I now know, just leave it and get it off of you. And she also taught me uh, um, how to act in a soap. She introduced me to uh, the world of soap actors, which is a whole nother uh, animal, you know, because uh, I mean, they're, they're, they're royalty. Back then they had all those soaps, you know, all of them. And, you know, Erica Kane, you know, I mean, they had big time, Linda, they had big time people, you know, and uh, I had just started in another world, which was not all my children, you know what I mean? So that, but she was gracious and she let me in and we had, so we became best buds and I'm, you know, I'm, like, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a prankster. I'm like George Clooney. I'll take a joke to, till you cry. My aunt, I got that from my aunt Verna. I'll, oh, I'll pull your leg right off and throw it in the river. So we, we got into a lot of trouble. But all the people in that too are still working now. You know, so you meet, you know, she's a real, real professional and she still is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, so the year is 1983. You make your television debut on The Late Great, Another World, playing the role of Lily Mason. Uh, tell us what you remember about actually getting the role, which was initially just supposed to be a few days of work, and I think just a few lines of dialogue. It was supposed to be one day of work, what they call a day player. And I was ecstatic 
And I got that because I was in another show by the late, great Toni Morrison. It was um, going to Broadway. It was called New Orleans. Storyville, which is the original title, but it was about the red light district, you know, which was, you know, for prostitutes and pimps and all that. But it had great music. Jeffrey Holder was the director. Donald McHale was choreographer. It was, it was all of that. I was so happy. And I was one of the ladies of the night, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and the casting director, she saw me in it again and um, hired me for that one day for the um, Another World. For Lily Mason. And I had two lines. And it was, oh, who is it? Oh, it's you. And this is the way I did it. Hey! Oh, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> and they gave me another day and then another day and then and then eventually after maybe two and a half months they offered me a contract which is pretty fast it might have been quicker i don't know but i didn't know you know i just did my best that's all what i always do to get the next job you know well to be clear i was a very big lily mason fan um, you poor thing <laughs> no no you just had so many great just people that you worked with and stories so what was the learning like for you you know coming from the theater into the three camera world of daytime tv and who in the cast helped to mentor you well i didn't know anything about cameras whatsoever but uh, i learned through listening which i've always been good at since i was a kid i try you know you girls i can tell looking at you you just learn by absorption you know, you learn to listen and then get it and go with it. So I didn't know anything. And one of the actors, I forgot her name, but she played Stacy. I forgot her real name. But she said, okay, you want to run these? So I kept going, run where? But I didn't say it. But what she meant was you want to run lines, which is let's rehearse the lines. I was like, I had to learn it on the fly. I didn't know camera one, camera two. I just learned it on the fly. But one day I, when I was looking at one of the actors, um, her name was Constance. I forgot her last name. She Ford. played Constance. She was, uh, she's... You know what I'm talking about? Ford. Ford played Ada. Yeah, what? She was one mean old, you know what I mean. Woo! She said, get out of my line. Get out of my eye line. I don't know what the hell she's talking about, but I fled. They looked at me like, scram, beat it. I was like, what is she talking? She was so mean, but that's how I learned. Don't get in somebody's eye line because it's distracting, you know. She was what? But she was a fierce, fierce actress. You know, and who else was on there? Morgan Freeman, Joe Morton. You know, so I learned with the greats. You know, they they were kind. They taught me everything. Because I was a bit large. I mean, I was a bit big for the room, if you know what I mean. I had to calm down, and they classed me up. You know, Lily started off as a prostitute, and by the end of the week, she owned the town. You know what I mean? Right. Which I loved, because I hated the way I looked. I looked, oh, I looked like an amateur, but I, I was doing theater, so you, you're kind of big, so you got to bring it in, but not like film. So that's how I learned the difference between a play, TV, and then a movie. Say a movie, it, it captures everything. So your move, movements can be smaller, but, but more intense, but not so, you know, they, they can be subtle, but they come off different. TV, a little bit bigger, but a little bit broader, a little more commercialized in terms of the framing of how you look. And theater, of course, is you got to reach the back of the, the lobby, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I learned learn by looking. Now, you can't get me to look at myself. You can't pay me. I don't want to know nothing because I'm looking at like, look at my hair and my nose. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> but but important, I, those people helped me. And I was still doing theater at night. I'd go do the soap in the morning in a, in a movie. or So I never stopped. I wanted to learn it all. But I was getting hired, which, you know, I took for granted because everybody was working. Mm. I mean, Hall Halle Berry was on her way to Hollywood. She got um, some show. I forgot the name of it. Her first. So all that's happening. And people started to migrate out to Hollywood around about my, a year and a half later on the soap. They were getting jobs. I never expected to go any further. Mm -hmm. 
Well, before we get to your own migration to Los Angeles, we have these amazing photographs of you from 1986, sitting next to Liberace at the wedding of Felicia and Zane on Another World. Do you remember what it was like to have Liberace on the set and what your interaction with him was like? Well, he was uh, mobs. He was a professional. He was not a clown. People look at him and assume that he was not. He was a professional pianist and very accomplished and well-dressed, well-manicured. He smelled great. The hair was real. It was stiff, but it was real. <laughs> you know? uh, he, he just was gracious, and he had a great manager. You know, he was elegant. He wasn't uh, to be laughed at at all, and he loved being there. You know, back then, being on the soap like Elizabeth Taylor, they'd come on and do a little cameo, and they loved it. You know, now, you know, you can't drag people in, but it's just a different era. But he, he was wonderful, and he was not, you know, he didn't take no stuff. He wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't tiki-kiing and ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> now, you left Another World in 86, but at that point, you already made the transition to 227, which premiered in 1985. So tell us how 227 came about. I auditioned for 227 with a, a what they call a, a tape. You know, my agent set it up for me. Somebody taped the audition in a room, the casting director. I forgot who it was for 227. But I taped it in New York, along with I don't know how many women, but I put on a little blouse. I remember what I had on, a little something, because it was three parts for, you know, three parts available. Not the not Marla Gibbs, of course, but the other three, the neighbor, you know, and the woman in the window and her best friend. So I auditioned for all three parts, but I sent a tape and they sent for me on a plane. And I got on the plane and I looked around and maybe two other women, you know, who I assumed they were going. I was like, oh, I got this. Mm. Ain't nobody going. They just want me. I got off that plane. Fifty women got off that plane. I hadn't seen him because I don't, I don't, I don't know if I didn't want to see him. I was like, oh. I got to the audition. It was three hundred and fifty women. But I said, oh, I got this part. Same thing because I figured the more I'll, I'll stick out, and um, I got it. I went in, and um, the late great Brandon Tartikoff chose me. He handpicked me. Wow. And who knew? I didn't know. You know, I knew he was big cheese, but not that big. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, only audition one time. You know, I didn't go back for a callback because I had the soap. I was like, I don't need that. I got a job. <laughs> I didn't know. I hadn't. I was clueless what a pilot was. <laughs> Pretty. It was really amazing. So I'm curious to know. Prior to being on a sitcom, did you have confidence in your your in yourself as a comedian and your comedic abilities? Is it something that you had experience with? No, no. I was into comedy. I was into drama. I knew I would. Win a Tony eventually. I knew I'd win an Academy Award. To be honest with you, I was doing dramas, and uh, I was I was uh, fashioning myself after um, an actress called Diana Sands. She's dead, but she was a wonderful actress. She and Rosalind Cash. So I fashioned myself after them. You can look them up. They're fine. That's who I fashioned. That's who I wanted to be like. Exactly like them. They were great actresses who had presence. Yeah, Diana Sands was in the the movie A Raisin in the Sun, playing Sidney Poitier's sister. So to give you some, you know, so that's why I wanted to be in. Rosin Cash was the, in the Omega Man with some big, oh, Charlton Heston. You know, she was huge. So that's who I saw myself as. So, but I just happened to be funny. Who knew? <laughs> I'm serious, but I really didn't want to do 227. I said, I'll be typecast. I'll never work in drama again. And it's true. It happened. And I didn't like being typecast for years, mm -hmm. for years. But now I'm like, I still hate it, but it, 
it, it's, you know, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Well, we have to mention Rosalind was also on General Hospital, just so you know. Oh, oh so we know exactly right. who she is. Um, now, middle actress. Yes. yes, amazing. Um, now, what was it like for you on a personal level when that show became such a hit and you became a household name, never mind a one name household name, mm-hmm. dealing with all that fame and attention? I didn't know that it was being received that way because I was just working. I wasn't looking at me. Mm-hmm. I was just working, but I had a blast. <laughs> that was the 80s. I was, that, I was the it girl, as they called me. I was making money. I had a big house on Hollywood Hill. Well, I'm t- Sunset, wherever. I was that girl. I had a, three cars. I had a house man. I had a... This is, I, I, it, it was the 80s. Everybody, I was living large. <laughs> so I wasn't looking at it, but I knew I had it going on. But not like that. I was just being me. So luckily, I was like I said, ignorant to the fact, which, which means I didn't know a lot of things ahead of time. It caught up later. I had a little bit of a big head, to put it smiley, but it wasn't directed at anybody. I just was doing it all. So I didn't take, I didn't really breathe it in. I just was doing it. Mm-hmm. Years later, okay, after 227 was over, I didn't work for a while. Then I got sister, sister. But in between, that was maybe three years, maybe, I came down to earth, you know, and I got back to being Jack A. But it took a while for me because I was so successful, but I wasn't looking at it. I was just doing it. Then, you know, we, you come down to earth and then you get another show and I kind of evened out, luckily for me. But years later, people told me, oh, I thought you were, your head was up in the air. And it was, but it wasn't mean. It was just up in the air. But I was able to come, come back down to earth, but it took years. So I always say water seeks its own level. So meaning you have to be around people who have had your success, then not have it. Then you kind of, it's like sea biscuit. You leave from the gate, you like this, but then you even out, and you, you know. So it took, took some doing though. Mm-hmm. So now I'm, I'm much better even today. Before we get into Sister Sister, I want to uh, touch on the history that you made in 1987 when you won the Emmy Award for your work on 227, uh-huh. uh, supporting actress in a comedy. What was it like for you to snatch that trophy? Uh, monumental, but I didn't see it as monumental. Um, like I said, I was just working. So I didn't, it, it just went by, you know. Um, I didn't know I was making history. Who knew? You don't know when you're making history. Um, yeah, I guess some people do, but you don't, you think somebody else will do it eventually. So it was exciting. It was glamorous. Like I said, I, but I was already in the mix. I was... Look, I was hanging out with Joan Collins and uh, Milton Berle, okay? <laughs> I'm serious. I was no, totally. You kind of think, oh, I'm due or I'm worthy. Right. So I was on that level. But in retrospect, now I'm very proud. And, and um, I hope that they can write some material so other actors can get to experience that, you know, that wonderful, wonderful honor. It really is. Mm-hmm. I don't take it for granted. And I had my Emmy. Because oh. people, they always want to take pictures with it. And it's like, they want to take pictures with that more than me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they do. You know, because selfies and all that, it's like they, they want an Emmy. I mean, they hug it like it's a, a man or woman, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, in 1989, you starred in a, such a fantastic miniseries, The Women of Brewster Place, as part of a cast that included such names as Oprah Winfrey, Robin Givens, Cicely Tyson, and Lynn Whitfield. So what was your experience of that project like? 100 days, 101 days, we, we, we filmed it. It was uh, genius. It, uh, of course, Oprah is, what can you say, all of that. 
she's everything, you know, and, and handpicked, she handpicked me, you know, I got the job and I had to go meet her somewhere. I don't even remember. And she said, oh, we're going to rehearse. I said, well, she said, we're not just going, you're not just getting a job and going there and acting. You better work for this. And I didn't laugh because she was serious. You know, she was a producer as well. So we had to, she wanted to get acclimated and I started reading. She went, oh yeah, you're cool. Because nobody thought I could act. They thought I was just Sondra. But I came from, you know, from acting. You know, I took yeah. lessons. Come on. But they didn't know. But it was not hard. Uh, made great friends with Robin and her, uh, Oprah. And, but I love the work. But And we did it with Universal and on location. And I remember I was so tired because I worked so hard. And we all did. But I enjoy it. It was well worth it. I wish we had gotten more nominations because it really was good. But back then, I don't think anybody was thinking about that. They were just doing the work. But the last day we had to do a scene in the rain. It took all day. I got so sick, so I never forget it. And I said, no more rain scenes. No more rain scenes. But it was worth it. It was really great. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in 1994, your series, Sister, Sister, debuted. It ran for six seasons. It keeps finding new fans, I think, through syndication and now it being on Netflix. Um, Like, looking back, did you ever imagine it would be considered as iconic a show as it is? No. No, we filmed the, um, the pilot and we didn't like it. We meaning myself, the twins, Stan Tamara and Tim Reed. We looked at it and we went, mm, this ain't going nowhere. <laughs> and lo and behold, you know, but I enjoyed it. We never had any, any drama on there whatsoever. And those girls were still, and Tim, we're all still friends to this day. I mean, real friends, you know, we don't get together and talk about the show or nothing. We talk about life because they have their own husbands, families, wives, cats, dogs, parrots, you know. <laughs> it, yeah, they, they really are accomplished young women. And uh, Tim, you know, we're all great, great friends. So that's the good thing that came out of that. And uh, seeing that it's on, uh, it's streaming before we even knew about that, you know. And people were home during the, the pandemic, so they got to really, and they're still watching it. I'm like, you need a life. <laughs> but, but so do I, because <laughs> I'm watching Grey's Anatomy now. I never watched Grey's Anatomy. I'm 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 loving it. It's a great show. Good. Yeah, I know it's so good. <laughs> well, what is it like for you when you do have people who approach you still about two two seven and or or sister sister and share their memories of loving those shows? Well, two two seven, I ain't going back that far. Y'all go ahead. But <laughs> I'm still with us, so I'm all right with that. But I don't go back. I, I go back. Maybe five years, I'm good. But after that, I'm done. <laughs> I want to stay in the present because, you know, I'm, you just got to stay current and relevant, as the girls tell me. You yeah. got to stay current and relevant, you know. <laughs> on, you know, on social media, they made me get on it. I was like, I don't want to do that. They said, you got to. And they were right. They were, mm-hmm. so, that was in 1990, whatever. I was like, ah, who's doing this? Everybody. <laughs> now from 2006 to 2009 you recurred as Vanessa on Everybody Hates Chris where your on-screen best friend was played by Tachina Arnold who also got her start on daytime with roles on Ryan's Hope and All My Children so tell us about working with her I wish I could be Tachina Arnold if anybody I wish I could be her she never stops look at her you know she's been acting she was, since she was what 13 well younger than that but on television or on theater, I mean, but the girl goes and she's like the battery. She the bat the bunny uh, uh, charge. Yeah. yeah, she keeps going and going. But her, always quality and always fierce. 
Fast forwarding to 2020, it made headlines aplenty when you announced that you were joining the cast of Days in the role you currently play, Paulina Price. So tell us how the Days job came about. They just called me. Um, the pandemic was happening. So it happened during the pandemic. And uh, my manager called me. He said, well, they're interested in you. And it wasn't to be for long. Another one, just for a little arc of a story and go in. You know, and uh, I was like, hey, nothing else is going on, you know, because I wasn't coming out. I really, you know, like everybody else, you know, I was scared. Then I was bored. Then I was angry. Then I was bored again. And then I was angry again. And then I was hungry. You know, all of that. <laughs> but I want to work just like everybody. Some people were able to work from home. But even so, you still have to get out. So they said they had the bubble. They were taking the test. And I went, OK, this could be cool for a little bit. And I got over here and they were so lovely to me. They treated me so good and they still do. And um, so, and then they started writing for me. And that, by that I mean, they start writing with you in mind. You know, a lot of people don't know what that means. You know, when they write for you, it comes to you and you create a, create a character. And so it's a collaboration between the head writer, Ron Calabati, and uh, executive producer, Albert Alar, and the vision and the wonderful, wonderful, I'm curious to know, because I'm sure soaps moved fast when you did Another World, but probably it's nothing in comparison to the current pace at days. Were you shocked by how quickly it moves? I'm still in shock. Um, um, so we went on hiatus for a bit, and then, you know, you, you rest, and then the day comes and you got to go back and you got 50 pages. And that, the anxiety, the angst, the dread, it all comes up all at once because you got to do it. There's... There's no other way. You got to get up early. You got to get up with the, the you know, the uh, rooster, and you got to be on your game. And you got to know, and you got to navigate technology, which, thank God, I kept up with during the pandemic. I didn't know a lot. I know, I know a lot now. You, know, especially somebody over fifty. Let me tell you, over fifty means you don't know jack. <laughs> but I knew it all from being. I was like, I want to know. I want to know what's going on. You know, I knew about social media, but in terms of your iPad with your computer and your phone, how you can work it. And so I got to know how to use, use it so I could learn my lines and all that. It, it was, you know, cause everything wasn't open for you to go and get this printed and get this. It was just too much. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that was the, the positive thing. I learned how to, even with movies, I learned how to do everything via the computer and my phone and my iPad because you need them all in conjunction. So I hate to be so boring, but it really yeah. helped me, yeah, being on the soap because they, they got me up to speed. But the first two weeks, I was a wreck. <laughs> Pills didn't help, alcohol, nothing, because you have to get an understanding. You know, and my memory, thank God, I have to knock on wood. My memory's good, but you can't program acting. You got to know it. You got you to know how to act. But with lines, it's like, oh, God. But the pace mm -hmm. they have, I'm, I'm, even now I'm looking, but once you settle into it, it's still crazy. Well, you know, you've been such a hit on days already as you have been in pretty much every single thing you've ever done. So what does it mean to you as you look back at where your career started and where it is today and what you've accomplished? Well, I, I really wished that I could have accomplished more in films, but I don't miss it like I used to or in terms of my, you know, my yearnings and my uh, want to, to do more creative work in terms for black actresses. And as somebody who's accomplished in terms of, you know, my learning, so I haven't used that, but I still am in love with teaching. So I can pass that on to other people. So maybe I'll eventually give some lessons and do stuff like that because I get enjoyment out of, out of teaching. And that comes from being in New York. New York 
I'm, I'm a, a, a child of the public school system. And that has stayed with me all my life. You know, you really, you know, Eastern schools, Northeasterns particularly, have the best school system. You learn, and you learn how to be with people and the joy and in, in, in being with people and collaborating. So that's in me and it's ingrained and thank God it is, it's not fake. You know, so I have something I'm always thinking of and how to help and how to be of service. So that's the best thing. And these people here, it's a little bubble. By that, I mean, we, we just hear self-contained, but they, they're really, really, they're royalty here. They really are. Well, thank you so much, Jack Hay. It was great to talk to you and we thank hope to you. do it again soon. Okay, have a great okay. day. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks, you too. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Jack A. Harry for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast. One, two, three. Four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.